You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. All right, so um, do you guys remember a couple weeks ago, or actually a couple months ago, when uh, Steve Barr was here? Okay, so Steve Barr, um, good friend of ours, good friend of our church, uh, he asked me uh, from, and the tech team to pull up one picture, um, and he was going to use it in what I assumed was a sermon illustration. And we said, I want you to get this picture. And I looked it up, and I was like, no, because it was a picture, I don't know if you guys remember this, of the patent of the original toilet paper roll. Yes. Okay? And I have had a sermon illustration using the original patent of the toilet paper roll for years now. And I just never had the opportunity to use it. And he's like, pull up this picture. And I'm like, he's going to use it. And now I can't use it here anymore. But to my surprise and joy, he actually just used it as an icebreaker, right? Because he was like, oh, yeah, this is the original one. And this is how it's supposed to be used. And didn't say anything else really about it. I'm like, all right, cool. I can still use it. And so now, I am going to use it. Okay? Danny, can we get that picture? All right. So here we have the original toilet paper roll patent, right? And it settles the old debate of, is the proper way to put a toilet paper roll on the holder over or under? And according to the creator of the toilet paper roll, it is over. Okay? It is over. We know this. And so if it is in your house and it's over, you are doing it correctly, according to the creator. If, it, if it's behind, if it's under, all right, it still works, but it's a little more inconvenient. And every time I look at it, I'm like, come on. Okay? And, if, and if you're one of those people who puts the toilet paper roll on top of the counter, when there is clearly a holder there and there's an empty one that you haven't taken off because you're just too lazy to do it, then you need Jesus. <laughs> And so, so, you know, we have to go back to the creator to ask, what is the right way to do this? And we have to ask that in life, too. We have to ask the creator, God, what is life supposed to be looking like? Right? We're in our series about God the Father. So if God the Father is our creator, what is life supposed to look like? We always ask these questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Well, what does the creator have to say about that? What is his original intent for us as people? What is his original intent? And that's what we're going to look at today. Do we actually ask God? Do we have that in mind when we approach life? Do we ask the creator, what was your original intent? Right? And the wonderful thing is, is that God doesn't leave us blind or in the dark about this. Namely, he wants to speak to us. He knows, and he does. Um, and I, we're going to look through the book of Genesis today. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now, before we explore this, um, through the past couple messages that I've given, You've heard me share from places of scripture that may have what we look at as contradictions in them, okay? And I've looked at uh, passages such as the genealogies of Jesus, um, which have some contradictions in them if you look at them, um, Kings versus Chronicles, or even the four Gospels. In each of those situations, we found out that if we over-debate the discrepancies in the text, we start missing the point of what the text is trying to tell us. And we have to allow scripture to speak for itself. God saw fit to leave these in there, despite the fact that it doesn't quite always fit the way that we want them to, okay, in our 21st century minds. The same thing can be said about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, I recognize that this piece of theology is a lot more important to people than the genealogies, because no one cares about the genealogies. The creation versus evolution debate has been an ongoing source of conflict for over a century. 
you may already have some misgivings about me bringing it up in this context. But Genesis 1 through chapter 2 verse 4 shows God creating the universe from nothing in six days. And Genesis 2, there's a retelling or refocusing or even a different account of creation that leads into the Garden of Eden, uh, which is in chapter 3. And I say possibly different because there are some major differences between Genesis 1 and 2, especially in the order of creation. Genesis 1 goes light, sky, land and sea, plants, sun, moon, stars, fish and birds, land animals, and then humans. Genesis 2 starts with an already created earth with no plants, then God creates humans, then the plants and trees, then the animals. How do we handle this difference? Hmm, because there is a difference. Now, obviously, theologians and scholars have debated this and have had many different interpretations, but I believe there are four main views about how we can look at this, okay, in relationship to science, evolution, and scripture, okay? The first one is the complete atheist view, okay? And they would just say that, well, Genesis is just a bunch of stories written by ancient people trying to understand the world, and why bother reading it? Because God doesn't exist anyways, so whatever. And if you, you know, believe that and you believe in God, then you're a backwards Yahoo who doesn't believe in the public school system, and you're a science denier. And obviously that's a little bit harsh, but that is obviously not the road that we take as believers, right? Amen. Okay. Christian point of view, okay? Number one, Genesis must be taken exactly literally. Therefore, God created the world in six literal 24-hour time periods. This is where, coupled with the, an exact literal timeline of the Old Testament, we get the young earth model that says that the world is roughly 6,000 years old. Genesis 2 then must be harmonized to chapter 1 by saying that the difference is there because chapter 2 focuses solely on the Garden of Eden, as if God kind of left a little bald spot here, and then created, uh, created the Garden of Eden in a different order than he did the original creation. Okay? That's the first one. A second one is that Genesis is symbolically literal, and that the 24-hour time periods are not actually 24-hour time periods, but they are longer time periods, okay? It's just, it's just a representation. After all, how could there be 24 hours if the sun and moon weren't created until the fourth day? Okay. Some people say that, oh, 2 Peter 3.8 says that to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Maybe it's a thousand year period. Okay. That allows Genesis to be taken a little more uh, seriously with scientific discovery and archaeology. But this too needs the harmonization between chapter one and two. There are also faithful Christian theologians, <clears throat> scholars, and scientists who would say that Genesis does not mean to talk about actual history. This would be, like I've mentioned in the other passages, another case of us putting on our Enlightenment 21st century lenses and forcing the text to answer questions that it wasn't intended to ask. And in this case, by getting solely focused on whether the Bible fits into academic and history and science, and whether it always needs to be a conflict between the two, we're missing the forest for the trees and by forcing us to have Genesis as a literal non-negotiable, we're actually blocking people from believing in Jesus because they can't get past this one point. Now, in this view, we must be clear, we must be clear that God is absolutely still the creator. Absolutely, okay? The order, the means of how he did it, may be less clear in this view, okay? When you take this, this viewpoint, Genesis then has two stories, that both have a singular message that, are, that the writer is trying to get across to us. And we have to take that seriously. But by taking this viewpoint, scientific discovery, evolution, the Big Bang Theory, can fit into a worldview where Jesus is God. Absolutely. Though it would make some traditional readings of Scripture a little bit harder to follow. Now that last view may be kind of bothersome to you. Maybe. 
especially if you've grown up being taught that Genesis must be taken absolutely literally. I understand that. Okay? And at the very least, though, the last view does make the point that if we're so focused on this debate, if we're so focused on this fight, we end up missing the point. And we end up missing sometimes the beauty of the words that Scripture is trying to tell us. There's something very beautiful about God and about creation and about his relationship with us that we often miss when we're so focused on this fight. Now, to frustrate you, I am not going to tell you my exact theology on this. I'm not going to tell you. But I do believe that there are faithful Jesus followers in each of these three camps, and I think they intermingle sometimes too. But what I do want to take seriously is this question. What is each of these passages trying to tell us about God himself? There's an invitation for us as readers to get to know God more. So whatever your current theology is on these passages, I want you to put it away. Put it away for now, okay? Because that's not the question we're trying to ask. I want you to put that away so we can simply hear the text for what it's trying to say. Cool? Yes. Yeah? All right. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 2. And this passage illustrates God's original intent for humanity's relationship and what it could look like. Okay? And as we're going to find out, God designed for us not just a garden, but an entire world or even universe for us. The key to understanding and experiencing this universe for us is having a loving relationship with God. That's God's original intent, as we're going to find out. Okay, this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet on earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the, uh, water the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So from the moment of humankind's creation, there is automatically a relationship established that God is the one on top, we are not. Okay? God is the creator. God is the one who had the first action, and he is the one who gives the man life. The Bible says he breathed into his nostrils breath of life. You remember last week how Jody shared about how the name of God, Yahweh, right? Almost sounds like the human breath of life. Yahweh. It's almost like God breathing his essence right into the man. Okay? Like the man was just like a lifeless husk or maybe he just was more like an animal and then sentience, life. You mean a living being, right? I almost picture it like, like CPR. Like, you know, when, when you're trying to save someone's life and they're, they're not breathing, you can breathe into them and get their lungs moving in with, with the airflow. And that's kind of like what God's doing here. Now, obviously, he's not saving life. He's creating life. And I don't know if you've ever taken CPR training, but, you know, they teach you that the other part of CPR besides the breathing part is chest compressions, right? If you get over someone, you have to pump their chest. And now God doesn't have to do that. But if he did, he would have to maybe follow the protocols. And the protocol is this. You need a rhythm when you're doing the CPR, uh, chest compressions. You, have, you follow two songs, okay? You can go uh, one of two songs. The first one is Staying Alive by, um, by the Bee Gees, right? Right? It goes, ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive, right? Right? But, but if God's doing it, he'd be like, ah, 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 creating life, creating life, okay? And the other one, yeah, Steve's shaking his head at me right now, okay? The other one is one that I don't recommend using for CPR training because it is... Um, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Um, and that's not exactly what you want to be seeing over someone when you're trying to say, well, like, dum, dum, dum. another one bites the dust. Oh, sorry, right? Okay? But, but for God, if he was doing it, he'd be like, dum, 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 
making a mound of dust, right? But, hey! Um, <laughs> yeah, but, okay, anyways. So God is breathing life, no chest compressions, just breathing life into the man. And what we can see here is that his breath is ours. There is a connection. Our very breath, our very life is intertwined with the life of God. Our life is intended to be intimate with God. Connection. Now, the intimacy cannot be mistaken as that we are God's equals, right? We can't be that. Because God is creator, we are the creator. And that is made clear by the use of God's name here. Okay? The narrator uses the name of God as the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Okay? So this isn't just God. This isn't just generic God or even the God. This is the Lord God. The name of God right here. Okay? And as Jody explained last week, this all has to do with his relationship with the Israelites. Right? This is, when they read this, it's like, oh, this is our God. The God we have covenant relationship with. The God who says that I am who I am. I will be who I will be for my people. I will be your provider. I will be your banner. I will be your shepherd. I will be your healer. I will be your peace. I will act in that loving kindness. Remember the chesed? Chesed, right? That God's loving kindness is defined right here in the name of God. The Lord God. That's who God is to us. That's his title. Now, unlike people who just want a title in life, God actually lives it out. As we're going to see, he's going to live it out by being the giver, by being the provider. That's another part of his relationship with us. Okay, this is verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to skip to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, if you eat of it, uh, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal in the field and every bird of the air and, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every animal of the field. And for the man, there was not found a suitable helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last his bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. So God's various actions are giving to the man, providing to the man. He provides him several things. And this is all done, of course, in his loving kindness, his chesed, right? God is not this malevolent, dictator, distant God. Nowhere in the passage does God mean to say, yo, Adam, you just got to worship me now. And you don't, you're out, right? It's not him. Some, some people picture God as that, but that's not who he is. No, he says, I'm going to give to you, right? First thing he gave, he gave the trees. Plants, pleasant to look at, beauty, enjoyment of life. And then he gives him food, right? Food from the trees. And what quicker way to a man's heart than food, right? Right? Jennifer, 
I asked her permission to say this. <laughs> Jennifer is almost an adult. She's almost 18. There will come a day in the future, someday, when there is going to be a boy who's going to sweep her off her feet. She will find a loving husband one day. I have some words for this future man, this young man. When you eventually make your proposal, bring a ring, absolutely. Don't bring flowers. She doesn't really need flowers. She doesn't want flowers. Instead, bring a bouquet of chicken nuggets. <laughs> because that will be the fastest way to her heart. I guarantee it. And boba, probably boba too, okay? Um, hey, hey, he provided food for the man. And he also gives the man purpose, right? To tend and keep this beautiful garden, creation care. The man is in partnership with God's purpose. I made this beautiful and this vibrant space. And I would like you, the apex of my creation, Adam, to help me keep it that way. Now, I want to be clear that in terms of purpose, this doesn't talk about necessarily jobs, okay? Not everyone is meant to be a gardener. That doesn't work. Right? Not all of us can be gardeners. There's nothing wrong with being a gardener, but not everyone can do it. There are many different jobs. Purpose goes beyond the job. Okay? Purpose here, I think, is more creation care. Caring for what God has created. Caring for what God loves. And for us as believers, what does he love? People. People. Sure, take care of your garden, absolutely. But also, and especially, take care of people. That is our purpose. Okay? Purpose is important to us. A sense of being, goals, dreams to chase. These are as fundamental to us as food and water. And God knew and understand this. He designed us like this, to need this. And he provided it. And what better purpose than to care for creation? Be partnered with the Lord. That's amazing. God also recognized that this man needed companionship. And Adam needed a helper and a partner. And none of the newly created animals fit the bill. And so God brought him Eve, okay, not, he didn't name her Eve yet, but I'm just going to say Eve for simplicity's sake, okay? But he brought him Eve, okay, and made of the very same material of man, okay? He brought him companionship. That is important to us as well. We are not meant to be alone. I would like to share with you what I believe is the pinnacle of pastor dad jokes, <clears throat> okay? This dad joke, pastor dad joke, I have learned because it was repeated to me by my pastor's growing up um, probably at least 15, 20 times <laughs> in many different sermons over the years. And um, I'm going to now relay it to you, okay? When Adam was sleeping, Adam was sleeping, okay? God is like, all right, I've got to create a suitable partner. And he creates Eve, right, from the man. And God's watching Adam sleep. Adam's snoring like a man does. He's like, wow, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Here I have beautiful, beautiful new creature. What's he going to name her? He's going to be so excited. Adam wakes up, rubs asleep from his eyes, and sees her standing there right there. Oh, what is this? This is your partner, God says. Wow. What? Yeah. What are you going to name her? And Adam's dumbfounded. And all I can say is, whoa, man. <laughs> We'll go with that. That, I believe, is the pinnacle of pastor dad jokes. And I would, I would, I would just like to point out, um, my old youth pastor is here, Eric. Um, Eric, do you remember Pastor Barry and Gary telling this joke? Have you used this joke? 
I'm too ashamed. Too, too ashamed of it. <laughs> Anyways. So God gave humankind everything it needed to thrive. Right? He gave him everything he needed to thrive. The Creator's intense love and kindness is set towards us on display, giving to us provision, beauty, peace, purpose, companionship with both other humans and most of all, himself. Life as it should be. For all of our modern conveniences, indoor plumbing, electricity, air travel, information at our fingertips, wonderful as they are, and as much as I would love to see technology like Star Trek one day, there is nothing better than simply being in the presence of God. Amen. Psalm 27.4, one thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all my days, to behold, all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is the reality and truth that we must grasp and understand, that this was God's ultimate intent for us, intimate relationship with him, relying on him. He makes life complete. God's intent for the world. But of course, we know that this didn't last. Enter the serpent, right? Enter the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? So the serpent here breaks the order that God had set. He immediately breaks God's intent. Whereas Adam was given dominion over the animals when he named them, the serpent takes dominion over humans and begins to influence them. So the serpent is already messing things up. And notice what the serpent says. The serpent says, did God say? Hmm. The narrator's been using the, 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 been using the Lord God. But here the serpent says, God. He doesn't use Lord when he calls him God. Oh, the serpent doesn't really follow God as Lord. Just regular God. So he's automatically kind of suggesting to Eve, who he's talking to, that she can undermine her relationship with God as well. And when you do that, when you toss Lord out the window, then out goes the window, intimacy. Then gone is the provider, cut out as the one who gives the purpose. Just God, this distant deity, kind of throws this question into Eve's mind. This God told you you couldn't eat from all these trees? Now to Eve's credit, she does make the correction but not quite accurately. Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, but God said, Eve, God, not Lord God. Oh, Eve has also just said God. In her mind, she has lost the Lord as well. Ooh, that's not good, Eve, because if you've thrown that out, what's that going to do? Okay, but she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Wait a minute, God didn't say that. She's adding this extra rule. God didn't say, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. Okay? So she's automatically throwing this extra rule on there. As if like, oh, God's just like, he's really restrictive, that jerk. God didn't say that. She's adding this extra boundary line to God's one rule. And there's a really legalistic rule that she adds. Eve's addition adds a layer of distrust to her relationship with God. Anytime that we get so focused on the rules, the legalism, just the check boxes, we're bound to grow wary. Because on a fundamental human level, we fall. We fall. And when that happens, we can enter into sin and guilt and shame cycle. And we start resenting the boundaries that were meant to keep us safe, right? Don't eat of it because on that day you will die. 
That's meant to protect us. But here she sees God is not giving freedom in those boundaries, but being extra restrictive. And he fails to see God's freedom, starts imagining God as much more restrictive than he actually was. And so Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 4, But the servant said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. I don't know what he was doing. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. She had an undermined relationship with God. She didn't see him as Lord anymore. And so now she saw that fruit in an entirely different context. Now she saw it as something to be coveted. Now she saw it as something that God was hiding from. Now she saw it as a way that, oh, she could elevate her status and be like God, not God's original intended order. She was already made in the image of God, as, we, as we're going to read in Genesis 1 a little bit from now. But God, the, or, but the snake tempts her to become like God, a distortion of God's intended order. The snake, the snake doesn't even tell her to do it. She just does it. He just talks. Then she makes the choice and he does it, and then compounds it by giving it to her husband, who's just standing there. I don't know, he's like on his phone or something. And indeed, like the snake says, their eyes are opened, but not quite in the way that they were hoping. They suddenly knew and understood that they were naked. What was, was once intimate comfort between Adam and Eve, right? If you are generally in the same room as someone and you're both naked and you're okay with it, you are generally comfortable. That's intimate. They were married. It's okay, okay? But that's now reduced to shame, hiding, broken companionship. God's original intent was now disrupted. His original intentions, his provision, his love, his purposes have been twisted. Everything is starting to spiral. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And now even the trees have had their intended order disrupted. They were supposed to be pleasant to look at. And now people are hiding behind them. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Mm, there's some broken relationship with God and Eve at the same sentence. Adam just threw both of them under the bus. Then the Lord God said, the woman, what is it you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. More shifting blame, not taking responsibility for your actions. Everything is starting to really spiral in control. We're going to skip over what God gives the snake for consequences. But he says to the woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In your pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In ancient Israelite times, of course, one of the woman's main purpose, a wife's main purpose, is to have kids. And there was joy in this, to have a lot of kids. But now, that purpose has pain. Now that purpose is distorted. Now, obviously, I will not understand ever what that pain feels like. I know there are many women in here that know what that pain feels like. But then maybe that wasn't how it was supposed to be. 
her purpose was disrupted. Verse 17, and to the man he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and I've eaten of the tree about which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now the man's purpose is also twisted. Now he has to search has to struggle and suffer in the very thing he's created to do. Toil that garden, but now it's painful. All of God's original intent has been disrupted. Now the snake was kind of right in that Adam and Eve didn't physically die on that day, right? God had said, if you eat of it, on that day you will die, but they didn't die. Does that make God a liar? Does that make God a, you know, an empty threat? No, sure, they didn't physically die, but on that day, their true life, their intended life, died. They had everything. They had the life God had wanted for them. And now it's gone. Now it's gone. And we may read this like a horror movie, like, no, don't go in there. Don't, don't eat the fruit. Come on, man, don't you see what the snake is doing? But we forget that we eat that fruit all the time. When we let our purpose be defined by our culture, rather than God, we eat the fruit. When we are consumed in our work and we do dishonest things to make money or get that promotion, we eat the fruit. When we care more about ourselves rather than other people, part of God's creation, we eat the fruit. When we let chaos in our lives, our emotions, our pain, our struggles, real as they are, dictate our life, we eat the fruit. When we hide from God, when we blame others, when we don't take responsibility for our actions, we eat the fruit. When we let anything, Anyone, ourselves, take the throne of life over God, we eat the fruit. Now, thankfully, God doesn't leave us to just have that fruit hanging out in our mouths. He invites us back. He invites us back. And I believe the first step is re-falling in love with God. Putting Putting back God onto that throne, recognizing him as not just God, but the Lord God. Put him back, Lord God. And so, as a prophetic act, I want to read the first story of Genesis 1 over us. Okay? Now, it's a text that most of us have read time and time again. Right? We've read this many times, right? And sometimes when we read texts that we've read over and over again, it can become a little stale, right? We kind of have our guard up. We're like, okay, all right, here we go again, right? Um, how many of you know Baby Vita? <laughs> baby Vita, okay. Um, baby Vita has a special relationship with me. Probably everyone else too. But baby Vita, when I go up to her, like, hey Vita, how you doing? She just looks at me like <laughs> I'm over here. She just has this blank, empty stare. She looks at me like, you don't touch me. <laughs> yeah, everyone really, yeah, right? <laughs> like, don't touch me. I see what you're doing. Uh-uh. No, my sister broke my arm and I'm okay. You think you can talk? No. Uh-uh. You don't get me closer, I'll call my mom. Right? And sometimes we're like that with scripture. Like, mm, you again? No, no, I've heard you. I don't need anything else from you. Okay? So we've heard this passage many times. Right? We have. But I want you to clear your mind. Erase all your preconceived notions. Just let the text 
wash over you. Let it minister to you. Because there's an invitation to get to know God again through this passage. Okay? Come be in awe. Come find the beauty. Come be amazed. Come fall in love with God the Father again. Soak yourself in the power and majesty that's emanating from the text. Ready? This is Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from, from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. So, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind of which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the, all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant, yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sea, 
to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on that seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because of it, God, because on it, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is a beautiful tapestry of the words that shows that not only is God creator, but he's majesty, power, order, purpose, and love. There's something in the passage I just want to point out that God the Father's actions, it's kind of hard to pick up in English. In the beginning of the story, there's sort of an ominous tone that we don't always see. Because in English, we see formless void and darkness. That was what it was. Okay, that sounds kind of just kind of neutral. God just kind of filling the void. But in Hebrew, this formless void is actually more like chaos and danger. And so when God brings light into darkness, okay, and it happens just like that, like, let there be light, and there was light. Boom. Hebrew is only six words, right? In, in our translation that I read from, it's like 11 words. Hebrew is six words. Bam! Let there be light. There is light. When God brings light into darkness. He brings order to chaos. He sees that light is good, just like God himself. He names the light and darkness day and night. And he puts it to work as a crucial part of his creation. He takes chaos, brings himself into the equation, speaks into it, and turns what was dangerous and mysterious to something useful. He tames it. There comes redemption and grace out of a chaotic, formless void. And then he gives and he creates. And all of this is for us. This is a gift for us. A gift from the creator. We were made in his image, purpose to be partners in life, taking care of the creation. The stars give us the seasons. The sun and the moon are for light. The land grows our food. The animals for purpose. And we have a chance to work along with our creator. God is made us the center of his world. He loves us that much. In other creation stories from other ancient uh, civilizations, mankind is a mere afterthought. One of them says that man was just created so we could work and the gods could take a nap. But for God, for our God, for the Lord God, we are essential to creation. We call very good. Genesis dares the listener to not be captivated by his simplicity and complexity, God's power and peace, the sheer awe and wonder and love and care that God puts into creation. It dares us to imagine what life might be like if we took our true place in the heavenly order. This is our God. Can you taste the goodness of God in this passage? Can you see the beauty of our creator? Can you grasp God's gift to us? to enjoy, participate, find purpose in God's original intention, surrendering to his lordship, to a relationship of loving kindness with him. As believers, we know that in Christ, there is restoration of all that. Thankfully, Adam and Eve's transgression, and ours too, are not the end of the story. There is restoration in Christ. And in the Holy Spirit, we get to walk with him and talk with him and be intimate in relationship again 
with him in the cool of a garden, in our neighborhood streets, in our office cubicles, our classrooms, our homes, wherever. God the Father looks at us, his creation, and talks to us that we can have a purposeful, connected life, become blessings to other people, tending to the beautiful creation that he has made. Through God's action on the cross, he takes our chaos and brings it to order. Fears to peace, broken relationships to reconciliation, our traumas and tragedies, hurts and emotions, again, real as they are, takes all those anxieties that we have, and brings us healing, new identity, unconditioned love. And one day we know that in God's, in God the Father's ultimate victory over sin, we will be back in that original intent again. What did we sing this morning? I know how that story ends. We know how the story ends. God's ultimate victory. In heaven, all is restored. No more tears, no more pain, no more chaos. The Lord's presence always. Can you envision this? Can you see it in your mind's eye? Can you grasp it? This is the God we serve. This is God the Father, the Creator powerful, the one and only, the one of peace, the one of purpose, whose light shines in the darkness, brings us, brings order and chaos, who desires a relationship with us, his beautiful creation, just as he always intended. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we adore you. Adore you for who you are. Sometimes words can't even describe who you are. Words fall short. God, the beauty of who you are. May it just overwhelm us this morning. May we be captured by the sheer magnitude of your love for us. We have that in our hearts. The moment we start feeling to eat that food, Pray, Lord, that your beauty capture our hearts again so that we can come back to your original intent. Beautiful relationship. Thank you, God, for calling us to that relationship. Friends, if you feel like your relationship with God has been strained, if you feel like you've been distant from God, you feel like you've left the garden, God's calling you back. God is calling you back. It is great love. We may feel like we could never step in there again. And God says, no, come back. Amen. He wants to give you that intimate prophetic hug that Cisco had. Amen. So this morning, if you feel that way, if that's you, if you're willing, raise your hand. God sees you. God sees you. He's saying, my son, my daughter, you are always welcome back. That's what I've always wanted. Relationship with you. As broken as you feel, it is not the end. There's always a way back to me. Always a way back. Welcome back, my son, my daughter.
Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you, God, for your creation. Thank you, God, for being our God, our Lord God. Pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. That is good. You guys good? All right. All right. Um, yeah. So, all right. I didn't go nearly as long as I thought it would go, but yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I believe that's all we have for this today. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. Well, we love you guys and we will see you guys next week.